everybody. Welcome back to the Midnight Terrors podcast. I am your co-host today, Kevin, here with a special guest co-host. You've seen me post about his writing on our Instagram. He is a returning guest from our Pet Cemetery episode, and he is back. Welcome back, author, horror author, R. Jacob Honeybrook, a.k.a. Roy. What's going on, brother? Hey, what's up, Kev? Thanks for having me back, man. Happy to be here. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, I'm glad to have you back on. We had uh, a total blast with you on the Pet Cemetery episode, and uh, I can't believe how long it's been since we've already done that. That was already like two or three months ago now. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. likewise, man. That was probably in March, and uh, man, the time has been flying by. We're, we're probably in June now by the time this comes out, so pretty much halfway through the year. So crazy, man. Well, I'm glad to have you back on. We uh, I won't say what movie it was, but we had another episode that we just recorded with you. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, technical difficulties made us postpone that. But it's all good. We're going to revisit that. I'll give people a hint uh, listening in. It is a Stephen King adaptation. That's all I'll say about that. But uh, in the meantime, you and I are here to tackle uh, a couple movies when we're as we're doing this recording session. We're doing two two movies and. Uh, should be should be good. Um, and funny enough, doing the Pet Cemetery uh, remake before, we're actually tackling another remake now, which is uh, going to lead <laughs> to true, some good yeah. discussion. <laughs> we, yeah, I didn't even realize we've done two remakes now. We have, we have, and um, whew, we're <laughs> so this is much more, um, to say the least, gruesome than the last remake that we talked about. Um, so for people listening and reading the title, we are talking about 2006's The Hills Have Eyes, which is a remake of the Wes Craven 70s classic horror film. And um, this was a movie that came up uh, in our, Roy, in our conversation maybe a month or so ago because I was reading one of your, one of your stories, um, Roadkill Blues. And uh, there's a little nod, I thought, in there as far as some of the character names go. There's a, a character named Venus in there and a couple other like code names without giving anything away. And I remember asking you, is this an homage to The Hills Have Eyes because of the names of the mutants? And you, I can't remember what you said, but you, you uh, attributed that to something else, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's funny. I was trying to think how, how we got on Hills Have Eyes so long ago. And uh, yeah, I've actually never seen the original Hills Have Eyes. Um, so in, in Roadkill Blues, one, it takes place in the desert, which I was going to bring up on this. It's just a cool setting. You don't really see too much take place out there. Um, but basically, there's there's some jewelry, jewelry robbers, and they're co- they have code names. And the code names are the different planets. Mm-hmm. Basically, what that comes from is Reservoir Dogs. A lot of my work's inspired by Tarantino. Yes, that's right. And, uh, yep, and they all had the nicknames, you know, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Orange. So I was thinking, what could we do a little different? With yeah. So I've always been in the mythology. I landed on Roman mythology as far as like Venus, Neptune, Mercury, also the names of the planets, and that's where that came about. Yeah, it's awesome, and we'll rest assured we'll get to that as we go to the end of the episode uh because since we spoke to you last time i've gotten to read all three of your stories 
And um, spoiler alert of my reviews, if you want to call them that, I loved every single one of them. <laughs> so thank you, man. We'll, we'll, <laughs> I appreciate it. We'll touch on that at the end, absolutely, because I definitely want people to to check out your stuff. Um, but as we're talking about the hills have eyes, so that's how we that's how this movie got thrown into the ring as one of the picks that we said we do uh, with you at some point. And funny enough, I also have never seen the original version of the hills have eyes. Um, and the remake, I have pretty vivid memories of it coming out. So this was 2006 when this came out. So I was maybe 13 when this dropped, maybe 13 or 14. And I remember my older sister went and saw it in the theater because she was already a high school graduate, so she could go see it. And she came home and told me how, how great it was. And I'm like, oh, man, that sounds awesome. But like, my parents aren't going to take me to see The Hills Have Eyes in theaters. <laughs> so... <laughs> We, uh, now at some point we had like video on demand, like on our television. And eventually they got to the point where they had like the free movies on there. And finally, probably a year after it came out, the Hills have eyes 2006 became one of the movies on there. So I think I watched it after my parents went to sleep (laughs) and not knowing what was in it. Uh, that's the way to do it. And there you go. So that's how I saw it. I probably saw this in 07 or late 06 or something like that. Uh, when did you first see this one? So I actually saw it in theaters. Uh, if I remember correctly, I went with my dad and brother to see it. There's no way my mom was going to see this. And <laughs> after watching it, I know why. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was the first time I'd seen it was actually at the movies. And then after that, I've just seen it maybe once or twice, like here and there. So I didn't remember a lot of it mm-hmm. mainly just some memorable scenes but um man i i honestly forgot just how brutal this movie is it yes pretty yeah it's, it was like a kick to the mouth from what i'm used to mm-hmm. so yeah right out of the gate um so for people who don't know what the hills have eyes is at its core it is about a it is about a family who decides that they want to drive from uh what state did they say they were from actually i know that i honestly don't even remember i just know they're heading out to california going through the desert yeah they were i actually looked it up and they were driving from somewhere like stupidly absurdly far away (laughs) like Mm -hmm. let me look at this (laughs) let me look at this plot summary real quick they are driving yeah they're driving from cleveland to san diego like that is that is crazy uh a long way to go yeah i mean they granted they got a camper and all this stuff but they've i mean they've got like probably close to 10 family members on this trip (laughs) so i don't know how all they're they're making this work because there's there's a married couple one of the daughters her husband their baby another sister another brother bobby and then the parents. So there's like six or seven people on here. Um, I probably should count that up, but that's okay. <laughs> You're close. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to, that's got to be a lot of logistics to go into, to keep everyone fed and watered all that time. Now. Pretty much. So they, so they're taking basically a cross country drive. They want to drive to San Diego for the parents. Um, it said silver uh, wedding anniversary. I don't quite know what that means. I've never heard that term before. I think that's the 25 year anniversary. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> I'm not married, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> but uh, that was okay, me neither. No, no plans. <laughs> yep, that was the first time I heard that term. Um, 
so they're going to go on a trip for the wedding anniversary with the entire family. Um, and along the way, they take a detour because of a sketchy gas station worker out in the desert who steers them that way. And they come across some cannibalistic mutated humans who, uh, who, uh, are mutants as a result of nuclear testing in the desert when the U S was, uh, testing nuclear bombs out there. And, uh, now they're gonna fight for their lives. And um, funny story, as as we're talking about this today, I actually posted a, a photo on the Midnight Terror's Instagram that said, "If you you mysteriously are in the last horror movie you watched, what are you stuck in?" And it was The Hills Have mm-hmm. Eyes at the time because I hadn't watched the other movie we were doing yet, so I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good place to be. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, yeah, so right out of the gate, this movie is brutal as hell. <laughs> like, yeah, it really is. Like, um, you know, the opening scene, there's these guys in the hazmat outfits kind of searching around the desert doing tests and everything. Mm-hmm. And then this part I totally forgot, but uh, one of the mutants comes out with a giant pickaxe and just starts <laughs> destroying these guys like so viciously. Yep. And. So that's kind of our first scene is these um, scientists walking around the desert trying to explore the effects of radiation from the nuclear tests. And they get attacked by, uh, I believe that mutant's name is Pluto. Uh, And he attacks them with a pickaxe and, yeah, just goes to town on them. And I got to say, Roy, how old do you think you were when when you first saw this? If you saw this in theaters, how old do you think you were? I would have been 17 or 18 around 2006. Okay, so like right around adulthood. Mm -hmm. Almost legal enough to see it. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I saw this, like I said, I think I was 13, 13 or 14, something like that. Um, You know what's funny? This movie never, like I knew it was gruesome. This movie did not have nearly the effect on me of the gruesomeness of it back then that it did me revisiting it. (laughs) Like... Yeah, no, you're totally right. Back then, I was just like, oh, this is cool. Mm-hmm. But watching it a little bit older, being more of an adult, it's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah. It's almost like you could put yourself in that situation after having, you know, I guess some life experiences or whatever. It's I like, guess. I don't know if you're just more aware of your mort- like your mortality of, yeah. of in that situation or what. But, like, there's some vicious stuff in here that, like is deeply unsettling. Um, and I, I don't have, you know, a whole lot of research to back this up, but I did see at a glance earlier today that this movie initially got an NC 17 rating for the gore. Yeah, I saw that too. (laughs) And I can kind of see why. And apparently they toned it back to get an R rating. So I don't even want to know what was put into the original cut. (laughs) So I don't know if you saw, but when I was searching around for it, I saw the rated R version, and yeah. then there was the unrated version. But to get the unrated version, I couldn't rent it. I would have had to buy it mm-hmm. or bought it, and it was like 10 bucks more to buy it, so I just went with the R version. Yeah. Um, I tried to look up the, the unrated scenes, but I couldn't really find anything, so yeah. God only knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a, a two-pack of the two um, remakes, and... I honestly don't even know what cut I watched. From what I saw, it seemed to be the the original theatrical cut that I saw back in the day. I don't remember anything changing. 
Um, but man, the the R-rated cut is plenty for me. So I don't I don't know if I need to see the unrated cut. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just rewatching it now at thirty years old. Like this movie is like deeply disturbing. Right. And uh, I know we talk a lot about what we're watching and everything. I tend to, to consume and write about more like the psychological horror. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe one or two people die and it's not like anything crazy. So going from that <laughs> to, <laughs> to seeing people burned alive and ripped apart and yep. everything, it was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think what helps with this movie is that I actually really like this family that we're following. Mm. Like all of the characters, like you can tell them apart. Even if you don't know all their names, you can tell them apart. You can tell that they have a really fun family dynamic. They're taking a road trip, very down to earth. So when they get slaughtered, it's just like, man, that is that is painful to watch. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, there's a... A bit of a slow build to it. I mm-hmm. guess you would say it's probably like 30 or 45 minutes before the shit really goes off the rails. But I think they do a good job of really building that family up and you getting a sense to really know who these people are. Yep. You know, you have the parents, you have the married sister, you have the shithead teenager kids, who act like <laughs> the typical teenagers. Um, so that when, when the shit does pop off, it, it really hits that much harder and i think that really adds to the brutality of it that you almost get a sense of who these people are um especially in a short amount of time that movies are constrained to you know it's not a tv series where you have 10 episodes you know to build up characters and i think they do a good job of of really examining these characters in a a short amount of time absolutely and you know again they just have a really good family dynamic and it's like it it hurts to watch them get torn apart and slaughtered in the way that they Mm do. And so we start off with, you know, what you'd expect from, you could kind of consider this a slasher, um, but you know, who's doing it right out of the gate. That's one thing I didn't remember with this opening death scene with the scientists. Um, For some reason I had it in my head that they, they hide the look of the mutants. And I think maybe that's just because, newer horror movies tend to do that where they do like the jaws thing where they don't show you what's doing the killing for a large chunk of it and this one like you don't get a a straight shot on pluto but you do see quick shots of his face so you can see what's doing the killing and it's yeah they just throw you in Mm -hmm. and it's definitely a good balance too because you can tell there's something doing this and that it's like a mutated person but then, you know, it's probably like another 30 or 45 minutes before we ever get a good shot of, of these mutants again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it leaves you with that idea that, you know, this thing's not like a like an alien or a monster or something like, you know, it's a some type of human. Yep. But they just show you enough to where it's like, oh, <laughs> that's a human, but that doesn't really look like a human. Yep. And, then, you know, the, the reveal of them later on in the movie, then we get a good look. Absolutely. And. I love that after the opening massacre, I love these opening credits where oh. it's like this old school, like 50s, 60s, like nuclear war propaganda song that's playing. And then you've got quick shots of like articles of U.S. does nuclear testing and sets off like 30 because we get an opening uh, text sequence, too, that said uh, 
think it was the U.S. set off 37 nuclear nuclear tests in the desert, um, mm-hmm. and there were there was a mining town there, and they refused to abandon their homes, and that's this is what happened to them. And of course, they they reveal the backstory a little bit more as you go along, but you know, then we cut to the opening credits, and it's like little newspaper clippings of mutated humans, and it's the the footage of the nuclear bomb going off with this old timey like fun little 50s 60s jingle and i just i love these i love this opening credits yeah it's definitely one of my favorite opening credit scenes i would put it up there with another movie that came out around this time was the dawn of the dead remake yes where they have johnny cash as the man comes around and mm-hmm. there's just zombies just going crazy in the streets um but yeah i love the opening credits here and um you know a couple interesting things about these opening credits one it made me think like how crazy is it that the U.S. government and military legitimately set off nuclear weapons in America? Yeah. Like, yeah, it was the Nevada desert and all this, but, like, it's still just wild to think about in a historic context. Yeah, they just, uh, you got to think, like, even if there's no one around, like, they're still putting it into the soil and into the air, and it's like, man, you don't know how, <laughs> you don't know how far that's going to spread. Like, <laughs> It was uh, it was uh, the 40s and 50s before safety was invented, right? Well, side tangent. There's a there's a movie that I'm really excited for coming out this summer. Uh, the next uh, Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's got Killian uh, Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., I believe Emily Blunt's in there, and it's about Robert Oppenheimer and like the backstory of the nuclear bomb. And uh, mm-hmm. super excited for that. And that that movie in the trailer seems like it's going to play a lot on those themes of like, if you have this power, like, are you really going to be that irresponsible with it? Yeah, almost the morality behind it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the mutants are doing bad stuff, but like you tried to make them abandon their homes and they didn't. So you just did it anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. well, too bad for you. Yeah. You know, so. Well, another cool thing about these opening credits is those shots of the mutated humans were actually shots of, what was it, Agent Orange victims from, uh, I think it was the Vietnam War and other places Agent Orange was Agent Orange was used. Those were actual photographs of, like, the mutations that happened with the children. Oh, wow. There's, uh, yeah, there was definitely some familiar footage that makes up this little montage at the beginning because the shot of an airplane flying and then the nuclear bomb going off in the distance, that same shots in, uh, one of my favorite movies, that's probably guilty pleasure now, but I saw it right at the, (laughs) the age of six or seven in the nineties, uh, Godzilla 1998. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that same shot of the plane flying with the nuclear bomb in the distance is in the opening of Godzilla too. So I don't know if that's just stock footage from another movie or just something that was used in the past. That's now public domain or something. I don't know. I just, that's, I was like, Oh, I know that footage. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's probably some type of of military footage of a test that they did. That's true. That's true. And so we got, so we got the opening massacre and these amazing opening credits and we're introduced to first the gas station attendant, which is very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, while this guy isn't a mutant, um, although he kind of looks like one <laughs> with the way that they make him look, <laughs> he, uh, we're, we're introduced to him saying, uh, you kind of hear the, there's this thing, that, this really cool thing that they do where 
when the mutants aren't on screen, you can hear them whispering in the distance and they leave little little trinkets around and they kind of mess with people, which makes it all the more terrifying that they're just psychologically tormenting these people. And we're introduced to the gas station attendant saying, I'm out. I'm not helping you guys anymore. And then the mutants leave this bag on his porch that just has trinkets of from all the stuff or like items from all the people that they've killed. And they're just like, no, nah, you're going to keep helping us. And it's just like, damn, man, these these mutants are like just vile and like tormenting people psychologically and physically. Yeah. And he opens that container and that you see the ear in it with all the piercings and then the next thing he opens is the photo of the girl mm-hmm. and she has like the the ear with the earring attached to her there and it's just like it, well they ripped her ear off oh i actually didn't i noticed the photo i actually didn't notice that that was the same ear that's a clever little little trick there and yeah that ear effect is super gross it's like it's like right like it's in the takeout I was going to say, what makes it worse is it looks like an order, like a fast food container from a drive-thru, and you're like, oh, you're going to open it up, and there's a a bloody ear with earrings in it. It's like, ugh, that's so gross. Which is one thing I want to compliment this movie right away on. I don't think there's that much CGI in here. Like, it's it's very practical throughout. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I saw was the actual nuke town that they go to, mm-hmm. there was really only one building they constructed in real life. And the rest was a digital effect, which I couldn't even tell. No, that's very seamless actually. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, like, yeah, it all, it all seemed like practical effects. The makeup was all practical. So I think it looks great. Absolutely. I would say the only CGI I noticed later on is uh, a scene that we'll, we'll get to, but uh, the dad, Big Bob's death scene. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of CGI in there because you have to, but yeah. um, no, man, like the makeup's practical. The the gore is very practical. Um, we'll get to my favorite instance as well as yours and some of our other favorites in the movie, but there's a lot of great practical moments throughout the whole movie, and uh, it just sets the tone immediately with this, this, this gas station guy that even he's scared of the mutants. You know, normally the person's yeah. like, I don't care about these people, just whatever. I'm just going to direct them to their death. And no, he, even he wants out. So sets the tone beautifully that immediately we should be scared. It does. And it plays a role later on with him as well. That mm-hmm. it kind of weighs on his conscience that uh, what he does to these people. <laughs> yep, very <laughs> true. And so we're introduced to the family. They pull up in uh, their truck slash, you know, camper uh, that's attached to the back and they're like, okay, fill up the gas. Um, which I did kind of like feel bad for the gas station attendant. Cause big Bob is like, fill up the tank, would you? And it's like, so, <laughs> and the, the gas station attendant's like, yes, sir. Like, so pissed off at the way he talked to him. I'm like, damn dude, like <laughs> big Bob, you are yeah. kind of an asshole. Big Bob can be a dick, but he's almost like a lovable dick. He is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's Ted Levine. It's, uh, that's Bu- right. Yeah, it's Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. I didn't even know that until he pointed out to me. I was like, "Oh, okay." I don't blame you because he's kind of unrecognizable here. He got a little bit older, but he's got facial mm-hmm. hair. He's kind of balding. Uh, I did not recognize him here. Even his voice is kind of kind of twisted. That you wouldn't think Buffalo Bill when you hear him. Yeah, it's definitely a departure from what we think of in Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. 
which he's got a he's got a very funny dynamic in this movie with um Doug the one daughter's husband <laughs> where they're always yeah like he's talking like Doug's it's talking to his like uh yeah Doug's talking to his wife and it's just like Big Bob hates me he's like no he doesn't and then the guy like Bob's always putting him down and like he tries to pay mm-hmm. for their gas just to be helpful and the guy's like I can still pay for my gas it's like jeez man and what's Big Bob say at the one point? He's like, he can't do nothing. He's a Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it, I, uh, it, it yeah. reminds me of, did you ever watch the show All in the Family? I have not, but I've heard a lot about it. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Archie Bunker, the, the father and his son-in-law's relationship and that. <laughs> just, just always at each other. Yep. Yep. No, that was very funny. Their dynamic is... Uh, it's funny. I love when uh, Doug just has to throw his hands up because there's li- like du- like Bob will literally let him let him do nothing. <laughs> so yeah, so that's very funny. Again, they just have a really fun dynamic. I love how Brenda and um, uh, I forget her name, but the the older daughter, um, played mm-hmm. by Vanessa Shaw from Hocus Pocus, which was shocking. Really? Okay. Yeah, that's um Allison from Hocus Pocus. <laughs> All right, I didn't know that either. I'm terrible with actors. <laughs> well, she uh, Hocus Pocus, the little kitty movie, and then she's got this like 13 years later where <laughs> she gets her head blown off. So it's like, damn. Yeah. Now um, let's do the total. And I also I don't know if you're a, a comic book movie guy at all, but the guy that plays Doug is I think his name is Aaron Stanford, and mm-hmm. he plays um, Fyro in the Brian Singer X-Men movies. At least, okay. at least See, two, not... two and three he does. Okay. I'm not that familiar with the superhero movies. I mainly, uh, Bible Batman and sure. I really like the Wolverine movie. Oh, Logan is what it was Oh, hell called. yeah. Yeah. Those are like the two main ones I'm familiar with are my boy Batman and, uh, the Logan movie. There you those go. Always cool. Oh, and, uh, Oh, the X-Men cartoon back in the day. I love that. Oh, hell yes, dude. Love that show. Um, yeah, no, he's, uh, I say Brian Singer X-Men movies. I know that, um, there was a different director for the third one where Fyro was in it, but, uh, yeah, no. So he's a, so he was a, uh, an X-Men villain, which I thought was kind of cool. And again, totally unrecognizable. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I think this actually came out the same year as the last X-Men movie that he was in, which is kind of cool. Went from doing a, <laughs> from, uh, from a superhero movie to this like gruesome ass horror movie. Yeah, different side of the spectrum there. Absolutely. And uh, so it seems like initially the the gas station attendant isn't going to lure them to the mutants because he wants out of it. And he only does it after uh, the daughter's name is Lynn uh, that Vanessa Shaw plays. He only does it after Lynn goes into his like living space because she's trying to get the dog back. One of the dogs who are named Beauty and Beast, by the way. Fun little. uh, Great name. (laughs) Fun little. Fun little back and forth there with the names. Um, but she took she takes a look into the bag that has all the trinkets from the previous victims in there. And that seems to set him off. So then he's like, oh, you know what? If you take a um, a little shortcut, it's not on the map, but uh, it'll get you there faster. Which, side note, why are people in horror movies so okay with going anywhere that's not on the map? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a very good point. We could follow the freeway and get there, or let's go down this shady, dusty trail and see what happens. Yeah, I'm taking the one that's on the map and the one that's longer. I don't care. I'm not going somewhere. Like, if you're following the map to get to your destination, why would you go somewhere that's not on the map? 
especially after some weird truddy guy tells me to do it. If I encounter that in real life, I'm staying the hell on the freeway. Absolutely. And, uh, but they they do it nonetheless, and they're gonna go take this uh, this you know backwards way, and you kind of see immediately that the the gas station attendants got some remorse or like contemplating what's gonna happen. And I remember this scene from the trailer. They're driving, and the spike belt is laying in the road, and the spikes shoot up, and uh, definitely some CGI there because there's a little lizard walking across it, and the spike shoots up, and it like <laughs> slaughters the lizard. It's like, all right. It's right now. It was like, all right. I didn't really need that, but I could tell that there were spikes. But okay, and it completely like tears apart all of their tires. Um, and they spin out, yeah. crash into a boulder. Yeah, and that pretty much does it for the car. Yeah. Um, and again, like kind of a slow build because after they crash, I mean, it's probably a good twenty minutes of them just hanging out at the at the vehicle and just kind of like they're still making the best of a family vacation. Just, you know, having like a, like a cookout and hanging out in the camper, fixing the AC, having their fun back and forth. And it's like, they really give you a good amount of time with all these characters before the, before the shit hits the fan. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I said, they definitely did a good job of just building everything up and exploring the different relationships you know, the fact that we can sit here and laugh and joke about the father and son-in-law's relationship. <laughs> um, you know, the teenagers are always picking at each other. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, this, this part does an excellent job of showing that, you know, the teenage girl goes out and she's like tanning. The brother's messing with her. The mom or the other sister's trying to tend to the baby and everything. So you really get a good idea of just how these people live day to day. And it's, it's almost like a very candid moment. Absolutely. And, uh, but in the midst of that, we start to see, I believe this is where we get our first shot of someone looking at them from afar through binoculars, which um, is a, this is one of my favorite little moments, like little scares in the movie, because Lynn is tending to the baby in the camper, and she kind of rattles the the shades, like the blinds, and when she opens them, she sees a flash in the distance, like something shiny. And then she takes a look mm-hmm. in, and it's the flash of the sun coming off of binoculars. And they have this little, like, heartbeat sound and then just silence. That's a great scare. Like, it actually, I forgot that that happens, and it actually got me. Yeah, it is a great part. It's that subtlety aspect to it. You know, it's not, you know, a guy jumping out and boo or whatever. It's, um, it's very subtle, and, like, you put yourself in that situation – if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you you think you're alone and you see our, uh, the sun reflecting off of something, it's going to be like, well, what is that? Who's mm-hmm. out there? Like, are we, are we actually alone out here? Exactly. And it leads to kind of a funny moment because uh, Bobby, the young teenage brother, scares her by the window because he jumps out at the window, which got <laughs> me. I forgot that that happens. And so that actually got a scare uh-huh. out of me. And she's like, Bobby, fucker. And then he leans into the window and goes, could you get me a Twinkie? And she goes, no. He just goes, aw. It's like, <laughs> it's like that's, that's such a pointless bit of dialogue, but it's really funny and like just helps you like really care about the family. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so we kind of go on and they're all just hanging out. Um, eventually, Beauty, one of the dogs, gets gets loose and Bobby's got to go look for her and... Um, and Doug and Bob decide that they're going to 
this seems like a horrible idea to me as well. They're like, Bob's like, all right, we're going to go look, we're going to go look for help. You go five miles that direction and I'll go five miles this way. Like, I'm going to go to the gas station. You go five miles and see if you can find anything. I'm like, he doesn't have a map. He's going to get lost in the desert. (laughs) Right. It's that old Scooby-Doo. Let's split up gang. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not even like just going up the hill and looking for help. It's like go five miles down the road. That's like that's like a like an hour and forty five minutes out of your way, man. At least if you're walking. And, and you're I in... don't understand. I don't understand why they both just didn't go back to the gas station. You knew Ex- it was there. Exactly. And you're you're in the desert too. Like you're gonna pass out. Yeah. Yeah. The desert's <laughs> no joke. And I think that's one of the the great things about having that as a setting, especially for a horror movie is during the day it's scalding hot out there. But then what I don't think people realize is at night the desert gets like freezing. Yeah. So you think about a typical horror movie it might take place in a haunted house or the woods. That's one thing, but now you're in the desert, you have nature to keep up with. You yep. know, are we going to be so hot during the day that it's going to kill us? So we're going to be so cold at night that we're going to freeze Yep. on top of mutants. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's a very cool setting for a horror movie. Um, so they all kind of split up. Basically the daughters are left. The daughters and the mom are all that's left. Bob gets to the gas station. Well, before the sun goes down, Bobby finds beauty slaughtered, which was a very disturbing scene. Cause again, they don't, they don't just, the dog doesn't just die. It's like hollowed out when we find it. So thankfully we don't see that. We don't see that on the screen. We, hear it for a split second and then we find the body. So I was glad that we didn't, we didn't go into too much detail with that. <coughs> um, yeah, they, they immediately break the golden rule, man. Don't kill the dog. Don't kill the dog. Well, there is another dog that gets vengeance in here, which actually helps. So, um, and then, so Bobby gets scared by the corpse of the dog and ends up falling off a, like some sort of cliff thing and hits his head and gets knocked out. And we see uh, Ruby, the young girl mutant, who's like the only one that doesn't want to hurt anybody, just kind of watching over him. And in the plot summary, because in the movie, she's tending to him. And then we see another mutant like perched up on top of a on top of a rock eating a part of the dog, apparently. And uh, that's uh, Goggle, I think, is the name. Just, you know, munching down. And then he just makes noises down at Ruby, just kind of laughs at her. But in the plot summary, it says that Ruby stops Goggle from killing Bobby, which I never really picked up on. But I guess that's our first instance hmm. there of her being a protective mutant. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought she was just kind of looking at him and, and messing with him. Yep. And so Doug finds a, like multiple craters across the desert that has all the abandoned cars. And uh, which is I mean, there's like six craters <laughs> in frame with probably 20 cars per hole. Um, for some reason, he just grabs a bunch of stuff. He goes, look at all this cool stuff I found. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I thought, I thought this was a great scene just because when he first comes across the crater and sees all these um, abandoned vehicles, it's kind of like, what is this? And then the more he's in there, it's like, ah, these are the victims vehicles. Mm-hmm. And then the camera just keeps panning out and keeps panning out. Not only are there a ton of cars in this crater, but like you said, there's multiple creators filled with cars. So it really gives you a scope of just how many people that these mutants have, uh, you know, killed and probably eaten out there. Mm-hmm. 
And so this is where shit kicks into gear when Bob gets back to the gas station and he finds the attendant who's drunk in the disgusting outhouse. <laughs> He's sitting there drinking a bottle of alcohol and has a shotgun and is, you know, crying about what he did. And he says, I tried my best. I'm sorry. And he, uh, the attendant blows his head off, blows his own head off and commits suicide. Uh, that was unexpected. Yeah. And that was, there was some CGI in there cause they show you a quick shot of the head blowing up, but honestly it wasn't ruinous at all. It was, I could honestly couldn't tell it was CGI. I thought it was mostly practical. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we talked about these, these effects and, you know, you see him after he does it and his head is just like a stump on his neck and you can like see some of his teeth. It looks like real close to what an actual shotgun victim would look like in real life. Absolutely. And this leads to me, to me, this leads to the best like unexpected scare in the movie because Mm -hmm. right after this attendant blows his head off, we hear a voice come in from somewhere and it's just taunting Bob being like, daddy. And it's just, you don't see it. It's just somewhere off in the dark off screen. And they just keep like, they just keep repeating daddy, daddy in that creepy ass voice. And he's like, shit, I got to get this car to get out of here. And he gets in the car and then he hears the voice again. And the voice was coming from the backseat of the car. And that, that was a great jump scare. Yeah. And just how terrifying is that? Like whenever I hear something or, or I watch a movie like that for like the next week, I'm checking the backseat of my car every time I get in it. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets his head bashed into the steering wheel and is taken hostage into the mine. And what's, what's interesting and something that I didn't remember in my head, I had it that the mutants can kind of talk like speak normal language. But I always thought it was like more grunts, but no, they can, they're pretty intelligent actually. Like they can talk and, <laughs> you know, have conversations. Yeah. Um, I think I was in the same boat. I didn't expect them to be, you know, fluent in English. I thought it'd just be like, rah, rah, rah. Yep. but, um, but yeah, like they, they communicate through walkie talkies. They speak English. Like yep. they just look weird. Yeah. And this is where shit hits the fan. Bobby wakes up and goes back to the the camper. Doug comes back and they're kind of investigating around. Bobby's saying, look, there's some there's someone or something out in the hills and we need to hunker down. And Pluto, one of the mutants, breaks into the camper and is holding uh, Brenda quiet, who was left with the, the baby. And then as they're all investigating, saying they're going to do something, Pluto goes into his walkie-talkie and says, no, and off in the distance, that's when Bob is tied to some sort of structure and is being just burned alive. Yeah, this is uh, the part of the movie I always remember. From the time I first saw it in theaters to watching it over again, I just always have that image of Big Bob being burned on that tree thing. It's yep. just grotesque. <laughs> it's the biggest the reaction of him. A- it's the biggest shock of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it just comes out of nowhere and he's just on that tree being burned alive and just screaming bloody murder up. Mm, yeah. And it's Ted Levine. So, you know, he knows how to, how to sell that. Oh, yeah. And again, this is where shit hits the fan. 
Um, I would say this is probably where some of the most disturbing stuff comes in, so we won't go too graphically into it. But long story short, Pluto and uh, Lizard, who is probably the most vicious of the mutants, decides to wreak havoc in the trailer or, or in the camper. And, you know, two of the family members go down. Lynn goes down because she gets shot in the head and the mom gets shot in the stomach. Uh, and it's basically down to uh, Doug, Bobby, and Brenda. And actually, they kidnap uh, baby Catherine. Yeah, and with, like, that trailer scene, when everything's going down, it just, again, we talk about the effects, but just how realistic everything seems like the gunshots feel like they have, you know, oomph to them, Mm -hmm. and just the blood effects, and, oh, man. Yeah, everything about it just seems very, very real, very gruesome. Um, It's almost like you're watching a family... (laughs) Yeah. being killed in real life like and i think the actors do a great job of really acting terrified acting scared shitless like you probably act the same way in that situation and they really conveyed that um feeling well oh absolutely well it really comes to fruition in terms of the family unit being strong when the mom and lynn are both like on their deathbed basically because doug is there to comfort his wife And then he's also there to comfort the mom because the mom is cold and, you know, dying from the gun wound. And she's like, it's just so cold. And he's like, here's a here's a blanket, nice and warm. And she's like, is my Bob back? And he's like, no, not yet. But the family is doing well. And he's like comforting her as she as she's dying. I'm like, man, this is like this is not typical slasher stuff. Like normally we do not care about these death scenes. And these are so drawn out and so like emotionally charged that it's just like, damn, dude. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's, it's. I was going to say heartbreaking whenever he's, you know, holding his dying wife and trying to comfort the dying mother. It's like a very emotional, raw feeling to it. Yep. Like you can, you can, you can believe like everything this guy just saw and what's happening. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's horrifying really to think about something like that. Absolutely. And so at this point we're down to, the brother-in-law and the two siblings. So it's Bobby, Brenda, and Doug. Doug's going to go get baby Catherine back and Brenda and Bobby are going to hunker down at the camper and try to, you know, make an alert system, like all that stuff. Very tight script too, because all that, I mentioned that scene earlier where Doug just brings back a bunch of stuff that he got from the cars and the wife's like, what are we going to do with a fishing line? They actually use that to make a little tripwire to let them know where the when the mutants are in proximity. That's a good point. I didn't realize that's where they got the fishing wire from. Mm-hmm. And okay, so again, pretty you know tight script. And uh, I mean, this isn't a long movie either. It's like an hour forty minutes, hour forty five maybe. I mean, it's just go go go. Yeah, especially once it kicks off, it just does not stop. It didn't even feel like that long. No, not at all. And so Doug is going to go into the minor town, which is where we start to see more of the mutants. And he goes into the house where he believes baby Catherine is. Uh, He sees, I believe the character is called the big brain which is like uh like the mastermind just sitting in a in a chair with his head bent backwards cuz he can't keep his head up. That's one of the best designed mutants, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Um, he's super creepy too with the way he talks. And he is that yeah, he's singing the national anthem there too. Just he ugh. is. Yeah, no, it's so dark, dude. And mm-hmm. and but you realize there's a lot of layers there too because they're angry at you know modern United States civilization for what they did to them. Yeah, and he even says too, like your people came and made us move, and we didn't want to move. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we went down into the mines, and it just wasn't safe. And this is what you made us what we are. Um, yeah. There's another jump scare in this house that got me good, which is uh, I didn't, I couldn't tell if this was a mutant or not at the beginning. There's a a woman of some sort sitting like watching a television in that same house, and. Doug grabs baby Catherine and is trying to keep the baby quiet so that he can sneak out of the house. And then just all of a sudden, right from her, he goes to leave down the hallway. And I guess this character is big mama. Big mama comes out of nowhere from, she was watching the TV. He went down the hallway and all of a sudden she was right around the corner and just knocks him out. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that too. Uh, she's a quick woman. I, I'm, I would, I'm pretty sure she's a mutant because she's bald. So I think yeah, you can take away from that the radiation messed with her in some kind of way. Yeah, I think that it was just a lot more subtle than some of the other makeup because like Pluto, Lizard, right. Big Brain are a lot more like what you'd expect when I say mutant. This one was more just like a subdued, bald woman with pale skin. Yeah. And you're just like, is this another hostage or what? So it was actually a nice surprise when she came around the corner and knocked Doug out. It's just like, oh, damn, did not see that coming. I think what's cool about the different mutant designs, too, is whenever they were creating this, they had gone off of research they'd done on, like, radiation sickness and, like, the bombs in Japan. Um, They referenced, like, all that research whenever they were creating the makeup for the mutants. And I, I think what's cool about about big mom of the bald character is that you know sometimes radiation doesn't affect you that much sometimes it's more subtle like that and maybe your hair just falls out maybe your skin gets paler you know you don't always have to turn into like this monstrous looking thing um and i think that kind of subtlety really helped with it because you do see all these crazy monsters and then you see her you're just like yeah why is she there yeah exactly well you think of it more like realistic radiation like chemotherapy not not a yeah. not as big of an amount of radiation but here's a little bit of it and this is what it does and now these people are just like living in it yeah that's a great point and so the <laughs> right after this comes my favorite practical effect scene in the movie because it is so disgusting and it's right after Doug got knocked out and he got put in the cooler full of body parts yeah. Oh, this is disgusting. <laughs> like when he's I think it's just because the body parts are gooey and just free moving around. So anytime he shakes, there's severed heads and arms and legs falling all over him. Yeah, he's like laying on top of some old guy's body or his torso or something. Yep. You can just see like the severed limbs in the background and the whole cooler's just caked in like red and blood and also, too, it gives you that claustrophobic feel. Oh, like, absolutely. I'm not a claustrophobic person, but even I was like, all right, let's get this guy out of here because I'm starting to, to get weird, too. Isn't that always funny? Like, because I, I wouldn't consider myself a claustrophobe either, but it's also like if you're in that situation, you would probably be one because it's just like 
that's that'd be awful. You're in this cooler on top of body parts and just covered in blood <laughs> that's not yours. Like it's awful. Oh my god, I couldn't imagine. I, I would definitely be punching the lid for sure. Oh, absolutely. Which he does, and he gets out. And this is where it becomes something of an action movie because Doug takes the shotgun off of another mutant and he teams up with uh, Beast, the other dog, who has been just kind of popping in and out throughout the movie because Beast got away and actually mauled uh, Goggle at one point and ripped his throat out. And you're like, oh, that's so satisfying. Yes. Yes, it is. Dog revenge. Yep. But uh, it's funny that you should say it goes in, in the direction of an action movie. What I was thinking when I watched this were like those old school revenge movies from the 70s. Mm-hmm. So like, <clears throat> what is it? Last House on the Left, Spit on Your Grave. Yep. You know, where the girl comes back and just like, just brutally <laughs> destroys all of her attackers. Absolutely. That's almost what this feels like in, in the third act. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is that, so we both said we haven't seen the original um, Hills Have Eyes, but that original came out in the seventies. I believe it was 77. This movie is very seventies. So I want to go back and watch the original, but I feel like this one played it very close to the source material. Yeah, it definitely has that vibe to it. Almost like Rob Zombie's movies where you watch them and you kind of feel like it takes place in the seventies because he's so influenced by them. Um, I think that's a good point with this movie as well. It came out in the seventies. It's a retelling of that story. So it's only natural. It would feel kind of old school. And speaking along those lines, more to the setting of it. I love how much just like the music played. It's not like overwhelming, but just like the little old country Western songs that play in the gas station. Oh yeah. Where they play, they play in the camper. I feel like that goes such a long way to really set the atmosphere of this movie. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned Rob Zombie. There's parts of the score that actually kind of remind me of Rob Zombie. Whenever the mutants are near, there's like this almost sounds like a siren type score. There's just these little bursts of and that's the score. And it's like it just puts you so on edge because it sounds like an alarm or like a like a violin making a a really off-putting note and it's like whenever you hear that you know it's like the psycho theme you know something's gonna happen yeah yeah i think that that also goes a long way too you know what it reminds me of is the original halloween where or not the original halloween rob zombies halloween remake Mm. where michael's in the asylum and he has his first kill with the nurse and the whole time there's that that's right no, it's yeah, this definitely has some some zombie isms in it. I definitely thought that as well. Uh, I'm like, if someone told me Rob Zombie directed this just to mess with me, I'd be like, yeah, I believe it. You know, there's some I can see it. I can see it. There's some House of a Thousand There's some House of a Thousand Corpses type feel, some Devil's Rejects type feel to this. Especially what we just talked about, that cooler full of body parts. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure in House of a Thousand Corpses, there's a scene where they're crawling around in like a pit of body parts. Yep. <laughs> and so Doug's story kind of wraps up because as we go on, he ends up getting a shotgun, gets in the upper hand on the mutants. Um, after the big brain reveals the backstory and Doug's loose, uh, there's still a, you know, a, a search for baby Catherine. Uh, but Big Brain gets mauled to death by Beast as well, which, again, is oh so satisfying. <laughs> and, yeah, it really is. 
and there's something satisfying. All the dog deaths out there, and here's finally a dog that's gonna fight back. You know, for some reason, call it the Mandela effect or whatever. I just could have sworn that <clears throat> Doug takes the baseball bat to Big Brain. Like mm-hmm. I, th- I could thought I distinctly remember seeing that, but I guess the dog got him. Maybe it's just the, one of his false memories. Yeah, uh, he does fight off uh, Pluto in the house and he straight wrecks him (laughs) and uh he kills uh another mutant which is where he gets the shotgun and lizard is sent out to kill and lizard i should say is the one that killed um lynn doug's wife and uh, lizard is tasked with killing baby catherine but ruby the protective mutant has stolen baby catherine so now it's a chase between mutant and mutant because lizard is chasing ruby to try to get the baby and eventually Doug, I mean, Doug goes through hell, though. He gets his, gets a couple of his fingers chopped off by Pluto. He gets his head bashed into the ground by Lizard. Uh, he gets slashed a bunch by the, the, the spike chain that they use to pop the tires. And eventually we get the final showdown. And again, oh, so satisfying. There's like a big heroic theme that plays when he is bashing Lizard in the face with a shotgun and blows his stomach out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> and speaking to that too as far as doug just getting the shit kicked out of him i think it's cool just how bloody and beat up he looks mm-hmm. um you know a lot of times in horror movies somebody might have like a cut on their arm or something like that but like this guy has literally gone through hell like his family's been killed in front of him he's been killing mutants he's been getting beat up by mutants so naturally, yeah, he's going to be like covered in blood and there's dried blood and he's missing fingers. And I just thought that was really cool when I was watching it. Just sh- just seeing the kind of damage that he's been through. Absolutely. And another little character development moment after he's been knocked out, almost like almost knocked out by Lizard and Lizard is still chasing Ruby. Doug is kind of down and out, but then he looks at his fucked up hand where he lost a couple of fingers. And, uh, but one of the fingers is still there and it has his wedding ring on it. And he's like, all right, this is what I'm fighting for. So no, I'm getting back up. And that's when he kills lizard. Um, and it's just like, that gives you, gives you a lot of motivation, man. Like, Oh, you killed my wife. Well, it's your time now, buddy. Yeah. It's an adrenaline rush. And he doesn't fully get the kill in on Lizard because Lizard's able to get up and, you know, go to try to shoot Doug. Uh, But Ruby gives baby Catherine back to Doug and then Ruby tackles Lizard off of the cliff. And they both fall to their death. So Ruby has her heroic moment, too. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool way to end it. Almost like. You know, they've almost turned on Ruby to a point where they're chasing after her and mm-hmm. trying to get the baby and to see her kind of also be the hero at the end and sacrifice herself to take out Lizard. I thought that was a great way to end it. Absolutely. They're not just cannibalistic towards uh, towards these other people. They're cannibalistic towards each other. They're just uh, a lost portion of society, basically. Yeah. And the whole time I'm watching this, you know, like especially the trailer scene with everyone getting killed and everything. What's crazy to think is like, yeah, they, they look scary and they look all deformed, but at the end of the day, these are still humans doing this stuff. And mm-hmm. that was something that I thought a couple of times while watching this, like, man, they're doing all this fucked up stuff. But at the end of the day, these are still like humans. So it's crazy to think what humans are actually capable of. 
Oh, absolutely. And so we've got baby Catherine back now. And then so it's time for Brenda and Bobby to have their showdown, which they have a showdown with Papa Jupiter, who is the one who uh, attacked Big Bob in the car and put him like, you know, attacked him and took him into the mines. So they got a they got a score to settle as well because he also there's a scare moment where the wire goes off and they're like shit someone's here and then it's just a tumbleweed but somehow Papa Jupiter also got there and took the mom's body out of the truck and is now eating it and yeah yeah <laughs> that was gross what a messed up scene <laughs> mm-hmm. and but Bobby lures him back to the trailer and they've rigged it to explode. Yeah, it's quite the setup. They they had the gas, what they have like kerosene or the, or the the barbecue gas going. Yeah, they the set matches. off they set off the gas pipe in there, and then they lined the door with uh, like matches. Yeah, and, great trip. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, my only problem with that scene is uh, they can't believe that they've killed all the mutants, so now they don't have a camper to hide in. So I don't know what they're gonna do <laughs> going forward. That is true. I guess just keep moving. <laughs> yeah, they don't have a way out. They don't have a camper to hide in anymore. It's all on fire. The truck, I'm sure, is going to be soon to follow. They just don't have anything to do now. Uh, well, <laughs> they ride off into the sunset like all the great cowboys. I guess so. We'll just. I would like to believe that they got away because I like them. But uh, right. and so that's kind of the end. You know, the the remaining family members are reunited, but cliffhanger. We zoom out, and someone else is watching them through the binoculars, and then we cut. Classic horror movie. Just when you think they're all dead, there's mm-hmm. more to come. I love yeah. it. It's a great ending, too. It's a great... Uh, now, I don't remember having a whole lot of affinity for the sequel, so I'd have to revisit it to see where where they where they go here. I remember being the sequel being equally as fucked up as the first one. Yeah. But I... I... I saw it probably not too long ago, maybe like 2018, 2019. I honestly didn't even know they made one until back then. Um, yeah, I remember being every bit as gruesome, if mm-hmm. not more so. Um, I know it, I know it involves like people from the Air Force or some kind of military unit going yep. in to, to take these guys out. But yeah, a couple things I wanted to bring up, though. Sure. Um, especially in the second half of the movie. Did you notice the lack of dialogue and how well it communicated like the trauma they'd all been through like um the like the main dialogue is doug yelling at bobby that he's gonna go kill the things and then after that there's not really a lot of talking because what else can you say after you just watched your entire family be murdered that's very true i never noticed it it could almost be like a silent film at that point yeah yeah really a lot of the dialogue comes from uh what was it? Big brain. Mm-hmm. He's, he's really the one that does most of the talking, but that just really stuck out to me that there's not a lot of dialogue. They're not being goofy or hacky or anything like that. It's just a lot of silence or if they, there is dialogue. It's either yelling or crying. It's like, okay, there, I thought the actors, you know, the child actors, uh, the guy who played Doug, I thought they all did an excellent role of really conveying the trauma and emotions that they'd gone through, um, with these mutants. Yeah. It's very raw emotions at its at its core as we we move into the climax. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I never noticed that. That's very cool that that you picked up on that. Yeah, and then another movie this reminded <clears throat> me of 
It came out around the same time. I think you guys have covered it, The Descent. We've mentioned it a few times on the show. We actually yeah. have, we actually have not covered it yet, surprisingly. Uh, okay. Jason is a huge fan of that. I actually have mm-hmm. never seen it, but I have had yeah. mul- multiple people, including yourself, tell me that I need to see it. It's my brother introduced it to me and it is a great horror movie. Um, but basically a similar premise, it takes place in a cave and just very brutal, um, <clears throat> great acting. Um, and it really hits like a, like a core, like, I don't know what it is about that movie, but <laughs> whenever I think about it, I'm just like, kind of like gives me shivers or something yep. just thinking how crazy it is and how, how good it is. But yeah, that's a, solid one to check out and when i was watching this it kind of gave me that feel as when i would watch the descent well right around this era too about three years before this came out uh we had the birth of the wrong turn franchise (laughs) which is uh yep that one crossed my mind as well which is uh a little bit of i mean it's essentially like the same exact movie just Mm -hmm. up in like the mountains basically uh, and in West right. and in West Virginia instead of the desert, but for what it's worth, because the Wrong Turn movies were very clearly spawned by The Hills Have Eyes and like these types of mutant movies. Um, but for what it's worth, the uh, the Wrong Turn franchise are is a pretty solid little franchise, honestly. Um, one through six, I. I <laughs> Funny enough, there was a hurricane that rolled through here about four years ago, and I was stuck at home with nothing to do, so I just watched all six Wrong Turn movies in, like, the span of, like, three days. <laughs> Great way to spend a hurricane. Yeah, no, it was actually pretty enjoyable. Those first six are really good. Um, they did something of a reboot, like, two years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I say something of a reboot because it is entirely not a Wrong Turn movie in the sense that you would think. Uh, I won't spoil okay. it for people that haven't watched it, but it's kind of a wrong turn movie in name only. Okay. I haven't seen that one. I remember hearing them saying they were going to do something with it, but I just haven't seen it yet. Um, I know the first wrong turn, <clears throat> like that movie has some great tension to it and it is like pretty scary. Oh yeah. And then I saw one of the later ones where, where they're in like uh, an abandoned mental asylum or something. That's... And it is just so off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wrong turn like, four. Don't get me wrong, it was a fun time, but it's just like, whoa, this really went off the rails. Yeah, wrong turn four. That's the that's the one where they're stuck in the snow and they live in like an abandoned mental asylum for some reason. Okay. Uh, no, yeah, that it, one was just insanity. <laughs> it's wild. Uh, part five has Doug Bradley in it though, Pinhead himself. Yeah. And uh, okay. part part five is a fun little one. Someone gets uh, <laughs> someone gets buried in the ground up to their neck and head, and then one of the mutants runs mm-hmm. over them with like a like a like a lawn chipper type thing, like a riding vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they get more absurd. Well, that would be a shitty way to go out. Oh yeah, no, they get more absurd as they go along. But those are if you like the hills have eyes, those are a fun less serious version of of the hills have eyes um yeah but dude uh, this movie i I texted you this earlier today before we recorded this movie holds up beautifully yeah yeah it really does i mean everything from the visuals to the acting to the tension and atmosphere like I, i just keep going back to that the the atmosphere as far as the desert the songs they use you know the the family dynamic 
And then the tension too, um, even in the parts that might seem slow, there's always a threat looming. There's always mutants like right around the corner. I think it does a, a beautiful job with the tension in this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I'm glad we got to dive in to this. Um, I recommend people that have strong stomachs come and check this one out <laughs> because uh, if you don't like dark and dastardly gruesome stuff, probably stay away from this one. But if you can handle it, it, and when I say dark and dastardly, like literally, I just mean gruesome kills, <laughs> you know, like right. nothing, nothing more than that. It's just gruesome, gritty, bloody kills um, and frightening situations. If you can stomach that, then I think honestly, you'll have a good time. And this movie's actually really scary, too. I think it's uh, underrated in how terrifying it is. Yeah, definitely agree with you. You know, it's easy to get carried away with the brutality and everything. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, just, just that scenario, you're in the middle of nowhere, there's mutants hunting you, and it's a scary situation. Absolutely. And again, we've we've said it's got a lot of heart to it, it's got family dynamics and really relatable characters to it, which is a perfect tie-in to my uh, closing discussion for this episode, which ties into your stories, Roy, because you also have works that have relatable characters and very relatable subject matter. Well, thank you. <laughs> you uh, so since we last spoke, I, I got to read all, all of your three stories that you have out so far. Uh, April Awakening, uh, Demons in the Night, and uh, Roadkill Blues. And loved all three of them, man. Every, every single story had something that I felt someone could connect with April awakening being like without spoiling anything, April awakening being almost like a, I liken it to a haunting, like the haunting of Hill house in that. It's like a, got some, like some family drama elements in it mixed in with a, a creepy kind of ghost story, but also very psychological. And then you've got demons in the night being more about like the, that, that darkness that lies in everyone and our deepest, you know, darkest desires that can push people over the edge sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then roadkill blues. I love that. It's like an old school, again, kind of seventies, you know, uh, thriller where you think you're experiencing one story. And then there's a reveal, like a flip where you're realizing you're reading something completely different from what you thought. Right. And I'll tell you, um, you'll probably appreciate this with the Roadkill Blues. You seem like a guy who likes a good Tarantino flick. Um, <laughs> so so how I wrote Roadkill Blues was, it was uh, one day between Christmas and New Year's. I wasn't working. Uh, we had off for like a week or whatever. And I just threw on like a couple Kill Bills. I think Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction were in there at some point. And I just got really drunk doing that. And the next thing I knew, I had written Roadkill Blues like that night. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where Roadkill Blues comes from. A lot of Tarantino, so it's, it's definitely going to have that 70s vibe to it. And then you hit the nail right on the head with April Awakening and, and Devils in the Night. April Awakening is more of that raw, emotional story with horror mixed in on top of it just to spice it all up. Um, and then Devils in the Night. Like you said, if I, there was one word to describe that, it would be excess. Mm -hmm. um, so 
you know, we, we think we want to live certain lives. We all want to like be rock stars and party that way. But once you get that, what's it really going to do to you? Yeah. So, so yeah, I always try to um, put some kind of psychological, emotional, human element into each story that, that people can hopefully grasp onto and relate to. Yeah. And uh, my apologies earlier. I think I said demons in the night. I meant devils in the night. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, but no, I literally all three stories had characters that you could connect to in some way, even the dark and dastardly ones. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe, uh, is it Tristan is the name of the main character from, uh, devils in the night? Yes. Um, yeah, that, (laughs) that dude has some stuff you can relate to, but that man is out of his mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I wrote, I wrote that one while I was um, while I was working in a in a corporate job like he was. Um, so, what it is it's about? This guy he works in an office building. He gets moved to the overnight shift, and he meets this dark goddess demon lady, and she basically takes him on this adventure where all of his wildest fantasies come true. Um, so, working in that corporate environment, that office environment, like that's what I lived every day. You know. Mm-hmm. The boss being down your throat, having to do a job you just don't really care about. And then, um, you know, you have the opportunity to go for something more in life, live the life that you wanted to. Like, of course, you're going to latch on to it. Sure. And, um, it really explores some of the darkness that can come along with that. And um, like we talked about on the first one, if you could take the horror out of the story and still have it hold up, is it good? I always thought if I took the main dark goddess, villain, whatever, uh, her name is Callie. I always thought if you took her out and replaced her with like heroin or cocaine or or any kind of drug, that would kind of be the same effect. So you could almost look at her as a, a allegory. Is that the right word? Yeah. You almost look at her as <laughs> as as a, as a stand-in for something like that. You know, you're sure you're, you're down in life, and it's like, oh, hey, drugs. That could be a fun way out. And then the next thing you know, it just leads into this downward spiral. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of layers to 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 your writing which i which i appreciate um i liken it to again my favorite filmmaker uh mike flanagan haunting of hill house bly manor midnight mass there's always like in the horror stories there's always something that you can grasp onto in a sense of of realism and being like man there's like everyday characters in here like we talked about with hills have eyes um even you know even in roadkill blues the uh you know some of the town characters in there it's just like, man, you like there more than meets the eye to to them than what you see, um, which the character flip, which I will not ruin because you need to go in blind to <laughs> to experience it. Uh, the character flip with Venus is <laughs> one of my favorite things that I've read in a while, like jaw on the floor when I read that. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, uh, for, for checking out all the works uh, and I'm glad you dig them um, with Roadkill Blues. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's this, you know, like young 20 something year girl traveling across the country and she meets this asshole deputy and it's almost like she's the victim this whole time. And then when the story flips, you realize there is a lot more going on with this girl Mm -hmm. than what meets the eye with her. Absolutely. Well, I highly recommend everybody go check out uh, all three of your stories. And as I understand it, you have more work coming out. So where can... uh, where can people find you on social media and uh, where can they track down uh, the three works that we just mentioned? Yes, sir. I was actually uh, working on editing stuff before we started. So 
there's always more in the works. Uh, to keep up with me, you can uh, check me out on Instagram. I'm very active over there. It's author underscore Honeybrook. That's my handle over there. And there you can find a link to my Amazon page. And that's where you can find all of my short stories, novellas, whatever you want. It's all there. So hopefully uh, you'll head over there and check me out. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you jumping on, buddy, for this episode. This was a fun one. Uh, everybody listening, at the time of this dropping, there's another episode coming out with Roy on it, literally right after this, that is very different from what we just talked about. So uh, be sure to tune into both episodes. Go back and listen to our Pet Cemetery episode with him. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you, Roy, for jumping on. And we'll be back with more content very soon. Uh, get in touch with us, Midnight Terrors Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Shoot us an email at midnightterrorspodcast at gmail.com. And we'll be back with more episodes, a lot of episodes, very, very soon. Thank you for listening. This is a Midnight Terrors Podcast. We'll see you again soon. Peace. Peace.